0: Most studio owners decide to open their fitness and wellness businesses because they wanna help people and add more meaning to their lives. Their heart is in the right place, they're great people, but scaling a profitable business that feels incredible to own and run is trickier than ever before. So where they get stuck is no one's ever shown them how to run a wildly successful business without the overwhelm and the chaos. Plus, they're doing it all alone. Until now. Welcome to the Geronimo Unfiltered Podcast for ambitious boutique studio owners who are allergic to average and know they're capable of more. They're just missing the how. I'm Dozer, your host, CEO and founder of the Geronimo Academy, and together with my crew and my community of owners and managers who are the doers and the implementers, we are on a mission to pioneer a better way to own and operate a health and fitness business while building a life you love, not hate. So if you're ready to push the boundaries, level up your money, meaning an impact, and stop doing it alone, then you're in the right place. This is going to be raw and unfiltered, zero bullshit. So take a deep breath, strap yourself in, and let's get fucking started.
1: Welcome back to the John Mullen Unfiltered Podcast. I'm your host, Dozo. And Ben here as well. And look, I want to do something a little bit different today, guys. So, Dozo, if you're cool, I'm going to take the reins at the top here. Okay. I want everyone to learn a bit more about you, the host of this podcast, mate. yeah, and the CEO of our company, Geronimo. So, look, is that cool with you? Yeah. Look, okay. yeah. From the outside, like those are, everyone sees the big personality, the confidence, the bravado, um, the biceps. Yeah, sure. I want to go under the surface today. Okay. Just see what's under the surface, see what makes you tick, see what possesses you to wake up at four o'clock in the morning like a tick every day. So, you're after this dose? I am. I'm not prepared though. Perfect. Good. Oh. <laughs> All well, right. the best place to start, mate, is the start, right? So I met you at high school when you're seven. Yeah, what was life like before that? Growing up? Um, well, I didn't know any different. I thought
0: everyone like it was, yeah, mum's Chinese Indonesian. You know, was I? I didn't know my other side. Like my dad was born in Egypt, and he was kind of Spanish background. But I'd never met Nate might be my cousin. I would actually he would be my cousin on the Asian side. But like. I wouldn't even know. I don't even know the other side of my fam. So it was just, you know, mum, my brother and I for like a long time. And then like, my met someone, Pete, Pete came on the scene and Pete was, you know, basically our stepdad for, you know, for so long through school and all that kind of stuff.
1: But well, I just thought it was a pretty normal upbringing. A oh, upbringing? In, yeah. In Lof- Toss. In Loftos, <laughs> South Sid. Yeah, South Sid. Okay. So look, you, you rocked up at Newington, Year New 7. What was
0: high school like for you? Well, which is a pretty fucking fancy school, right? Mm. It's a private school. I never fit in at school like i never felt like i was meant to be there i always felt bad that mum was spending all that money at this private school and she couldn't even speak like she could hardly fucking speak english like you know worked three or four waitressing jobs just to put me and my brother through newington which was how much was Newington?
1: 20 30 grand yeah
0: a a lot per year per year yeah like we were at the furthest train station away like we were probably the most last train station before sydney stops and south coast starts and it was just taking the you know, the big scary train to school and back every day. But um, I don't know, my mum always said that her and my dad had a conversation before they broke up and the chat was
1: like, send the boys to a really good school because
0: she wanted us to have a future that she
1: didn't have. Mm. What do you reckon you took from, you know, your mum working those three jobs and sacrificing to send you that school? What did you take from that? I took from that two biggest things. I reckon that was my
0: earliest memory. Like, I, I reckon what built my work ethic and, and a big part of who I am today is I remember like um, hearing the engine start, mm-hmm. the Holden Commodore that we had, mm-hmm. which we thought that was fancy as fuck. So, mum would start the car and I'd just see the car back down the drive, like peek out the window after I heard the car start. I'd look out the window and see the car headlights, you know, reverse down the driveway and then head off into the distance, into the darkness. And just hear the sort of engine roar kind of fade in the distance, and it was pitch black. And I thought, okay, well, that's what working looks like. Mm. And then I wouldn't see her till she came home like later that night. And that was that was life. That was everything that mum did to give my brother and I a chance. So that's probably why I'm an early riser. Yeah, that's probably why I wake up and start at four o'clock. Yeah, that's probably why. I think the other thing as well, but like mum never complained mm. about work. She never. She was so fucking grateful about every job that she had, every boss that she ever had that helped her out. Still to this day, mum sends them Christmas presents yeah. to let them know that she hasn't forgotten. And so that's probably why a big value of mine is that reciprocity. Mm. And I fucking hate it when people get amnesia.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I've looked after you and now you've fucking forgotten it. Yeah, totally. It's just that kind of reciprocity. And then the third value that... um Mum taught me without realising was around resilience. Mm. We'll dig into that a bit more later. Okay.
1: Yeah. Run me through. Were you, were you a bit of a bookworm at school? Were you a bit of a nerd or what? I um, I tried. <laughs> I tried,
0: but no. For so long in English class, dude, I couldn't. You know, when everyone was like reading books, fucking, I fucking was like, my eyes were moving, but nothing was going in. Mm. Like, I never became a reader. I never became a reader until. I reckon, after school. What happened in the you reckon? Do you know what I reckon? I, I was a completely different student at school than I was at uni. And I reckon the difference was at uni, I didn't have to. Gotcha. Okay. It was up to, do you, know, it's I, up to you. Yeah, because like the school that we went to, was like, everything was fucking mandatory. Read this book, read this. Everything was mandatory. Like, sport was mandatory. School was mandatory. Like, high was uh, mandatory. So every, on everything was mandatory. And at uni, the first lecturer said, you can do it. You, you can do it. You cannot do it. It's completely yeah. up to you. And the other thing was that, you know, the course that I went into, everyone there was at that same, like you had to get a certain mark to get into that course. So actually, I think like the competitor in me turned up. Mm, okay. And this sense of like, oh, fuck, no one's going to, no one's going to check on me if I don't. So I'm, I might as well start doing this. Mm. I actually really enjoyed uni.
1: Yeah. I think like maybe that's sort of the signs of of your like entrepreneurial friend, like not having those boundaries and like being able to thrive in that setup. Whereas, yeah, we saw it all the time. Like kids would would get a really good mark in HSC and then they'd get to uni and they'd just flip out because no structure and then just yeah, flame out. I reckon I think it's already like the jury's out. The school structure is probably an arcade a mm.
0: whole nother conversation. But like I just didn't learn like that. Which is why, like, my Amaya, my eldest, you know, she's kind of struggling with school a little bit. And I'm totally relaxed about it because like she's like me. Mm. It's not the environment that I learned from. And I reckon there's a lot of listeners that you know, moved into entrepreneurship that actually struggled at school, man. It, it happened all the time. You said you are a competitor. Did you say that? Like, what was your sporting career like at school? I'll be straight. Like, I only did sport because we had to. And so I didn't even know the rule. We played rugby and basketball. I knew how to play basketball and I was in the ones and do this for basketball, but at rugby, I didn't even know the rules. Like, everyone just assumed that because I was big, I must know, like, I must play rugby and I must know all the rules. <laughs> I had no like it was just give the big fell of the ball and just take the run. Yeah, look, you got away with it for a couple of years. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but again, I think I started you know towards eleven and twelve I started to get into it a little bit more, and I kind of realised actually there there might be better potential here. But like it was never really a big. It was just just one of the things you
1: had to do. It was, it was just one of the things we had to do. Yeah. Fast forward to year eleven, year twelve. How was your health? Because I remember some stuff happening around around the footy season. It was um. I can tell you where it started. Mm-hmm. So we did
0: cadets, mm-hmm. right? We went to camps. I was the one mm-hmm. up at Winsdale's. Yeah. yeah. We were doing an abseiling thing. Remember this? Mm-hmm. And I reckon this is where it started. So we we're abseiling and there was a slip. I slipped, fell, free fall, like, oh, I tumbled. And then it was only because the rope, like, got wrapped around my leg the bloke down the bottom, the Belayer, I think they Yeah, called, Belayer. Was just joking with the other sergeant because someone just turned up in a ute and was handing out some coffees or something. Mm. So he completely like failed his job. Yes. I felt tumbled. And then I think I just, they pulled me down and then I was sitting on the ground and they were trying to sort of feed me water. And I was just like, the fuck, what was going on here? And um, I reckon there was a little bit of a shock that happened there. Mm. Anyway, yeah. So not long after, I started getting, like, weird, irregular heartbeats. Mm. It's called AF. So, from a young age, I was wearing, like, halter monitors and, and stuff at school underneath my uh, school uniform, and I was showing everyone because I was so fucking proud of it. <laughs> I was showing everyone in my weird fucking <laughs> heartbeats. That was, like, fast. So, like, they clocked me, like, lying down. They clocked my heart rates at, like, a 215, 197, lying down. Okay. Right. Again, thought it was normal. Everything that, like.
1: I thought everything was normal, like when we were growing up. We'll, we'll pick that back up in a second. Okay, so you finish school, you do you do pretty good at uni. and then, Yeah, I do good at uni. Yeah, then it's, it's time to get a job. Yes. Run me through that. Uh, what was the thought process about getting a job?
0: I didn't actually really know if I was fucking ready for it, but everyone else was. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was the option to like also go traveling, and you know, people were doing the gap year. And I was yep. like, I don't know if I'm ready for that yet as well. So I applied for all these graduate programs. I didn't want to apply for the one with the tobacco company. I didn't really care about energy. And I didn't, like, there was all this other shit. So then I applied for the one at Telstra. And then the recruitment officer at the uni who also, I think, underestimated me, which I love, by the way, mm-hmm. when people underestimate me. He was like, oh, no, no, there's going to be a lot of people that apply for this one. So, oh, yeah,
1: don't bother on that <laughs> one.
0: So I was like, all right, then, fucking will. I think there was like 15,000 people applied for the Telstra graduate program. And I went into all these assessment centers in the city, like the city, right? You turn up to these officers and all these other people in their suits and like the ladies that were all dressed up. And honestly, like I borrowed a suit off someone. I lobbed up. I was like, what are we doing here? And just went through all these assessment centers. And I remember the moment when we were sitting in one and they like basically mocked up what probably is supposed to be like a boardroom meeting or something like that. And there was everyone from like, all walks of life and I was like again that competitive is like oh, fuck I'm gonna dominate this one. And I just got the sense of like, okay, what's the strategy here? Right. You don't want to be the quietest and you don't want to be the fucking loudest. But you wanna whenever you do talk, you wanna have something good to say yeah, yeah. for all the judges. Like yeah. the people that were standing around with the clipboards they were like, okay That's So I already picked the guy that was the alpha type that would try and like smash the room and I all you know, I knew who the weak ones were. Yeah. So I played my role right. And then got invited to the next round, and then to the next round, and the next round, and then ultimately,
1: I think seven people got picked out of fifteen thousand. I was one of them. Bloody hell, that's insane! How do you approach, you know, your work? I know you had a couple of roles in big telcos and, and marketing roles. Yes. Yeah. How are you approaching your job there different to the other people in your roles?
0: Okay, good question. Firstly, the first thing is everyone just needs to fucking realize that everyone's winging it mm. like no one's got to fucking figure it out okay everyone's winging it the moment you realize that actually all the smartest people all the people that are like all the bosses and all that sort of stuff and even people that have like made it in the world or whatever they're no smarter than you they're no smarter than you so i kept that in mind whenever i walked into different meetings and like with all the big wigs and running different projects i was like they were no smarter than you just apply your perspective to things and don't wait for permission. like I would always like never wait for permission. I never needed to wait for an invite to add value if I saw it because that was like showing initiative and that was being that kind of pioneer that I didn't realize that I had at the time. I remember this one time I was running a particular project at Telstra and I thought, actually, so it was like the world's largest and fastest mobile network There was this project that I was working on. I was like, if it's the world's largest, it could be a world record. I was like, world record? Isn't there a book of world records? That'd be interesting. I was like, so he's called Guinness. Well, yeah. So instead of like not doing anything mm. and just having an idea, mm. I didn't even tell the fucking boss. I was like, I'm going to do this and then tell them.
1: Yeah, I love that.
0: So love that. I got in contact with Guinness, HQ, and at the time, you can only contact them via fax. They're in the UK mm. via fax, right? So I finally got through to them and they were all going faxing them back and forth. The only person that was helping me at the time was the EA to the head of brand at the time at Telstra. Her name was V. Shout out to V. Love you, V. So she was helping me get the faxes through and then we finally got word back from the office saying it could be eligible. So I was like, this might actually be it, actually be in the Guinness Book of Records here. So they required all the certificates and all this kind of stuff. So I went around and actually spoke to all the engineering teams and actually got all these tests, like these reports done, sent it all in a package to the UK, to the office of the Guinness Book of Records, and they faxed uh, a return fax saying, we qualify, but they need to come to Australia. So they get on a fucking plane. Mind you, I haven't told the boss yet. I haven't told the boss yet. Yeah. They come down to Australia, and I was like, I'm going to have to tell someone. Like, they're going to ask, to ask for know. access to yeah. something. So on the wrong way to Australia to fucking test this thing. I told the boss, and I was like, listen, I've got us in the Guinness Book of Records. You just need to meet someone. hand, Do something, and we're going to get the certificate. Next minute, we'll get a certificate, and the media team who thought it was their idea gets a full, like running full page ads in newspapers, like Telstra about the Guinness Book of Records. And still to this day, I think I've got the book at home. You can go to that particular edition, would have been 2006, I think it was, 2006, and you'll find it in the Guinness Book of Records for the largest and fastest mobile network. Telstra, that was me. That was your boy. Um,
1: so no permission. I love that. No permission. No initiative. No one's fucking, yeah. Love that. So it sounds like the career in the city was was going well. Right. So what happened? Why, why aren't you, you often joke about this, why are you on the 701 out of Canberra station? I tell you what, because I, I
0: just, I reckon the, like, the first week I started at Telstra, that first Friday I started at Telstra, everyone was like scouring around, like, they brought out a cake mm. and it was like celebrating, I forget the guy's name, probably Brian, he looked like a Brian. It was his 25th year anniversary or 40th year anniversary of work. He would have been wearing a brown suit and a- Brown cardigan. Cardigan. They wheeled him out from the corner in the fucking shadows. They've <laughs> blown the dust off him and they've woken him up and said, Brian, <laughs> Brian, here's another cake. And I looked at him and went, this, fuck that. Like, is this it? Like, have we gone through all the uni, we've gone through all these tests and this is a good-, good See? Brian's the pinnacle of, of corporate life. Brian, is that my real model? And because I worked at like, a company like Telstra, every Thursday it felt like there was another big restructuring, And just seeing the sheer fear rip through people's whole bodies, particularly like parents, that like, that's all they knew. And I was like, fuck, dude, oh, this ain't for me, man. Mm. This ain't for me.
1: Like so even early, very early on, you'd, you'd clock that. The first Friday. Okay. Fast forward a couple of years, y- your hearts play up again. You know, we've gone into that a bit in the origin story, but you had to get shocked back to life. You yeah. Flatlined. Yeah. Shocked back to life. Yeah. And that's, that was actually the part of our origin story of how we got into the studios, right? Yeah. What was your mindset like back then? Yeah, this thing that started when I was like 14,
0: 15 years old isn't getting any better and it's not going away. So like it's actually getting a little bit serious now. Waking up at three o'clock in the morning, my chest feeling like it was going to explode. Hospital visits and medication and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, they kept saying to me, we don't know why it's happening. It's an electrical thing, but we don't really know why people get this kind of shit. Mm. And that's fucking great. But thanks, Doc. Thanks, mate. Like, what do I do then? I swear I started to get a real sense of, well, the truth be told, I don't think I've ever told anyone this, but the real sense of like, I don't know how long I'm going to be here for. Mm. So. You decide to buy a gym. I'm not going to fucking, yeah, I'm not going to do stuff yeah. that doesn't have meaning in my life. Mm. And at the time, yeah, like the job that I was doing, you know, in the world of marketing and running the agencies and stuff like that just wasn't doing it mm. for me. I just like the world didn't
1: need any more dog food. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, I think it was a, we sort of crossed paths again a long time after school and mm. F-45 was, was a thing that was brand new back then. And yeah, I was looking for some meaning in my life and my career. And like the stars aligned on that one. That, that's how we, yeah, that's how we started our journey in the gym world, right? mm Let's talk about the early days of having our first business together, our 44 <laughs> The point of this is resilience, right? So let, let's talk about some of the, um. what I don't want people to see is I don't want people to see like, oh, you know, like the overnight success, you know, you grew your gym, you sold it, you've got Geronimo now. like
0: We actually get a little bit of hate from people, don't we? Like a little bit of like, what's it called? Passive
1: hate when oh you've sold out, have you? You guys don't know what it's like. You, oh, you guys don't know what it's like anymore. It's like fucking bullshit. So let's go back to those early days. You know, you know, there's obviously been resilience in your personal life. Yeah. I want to see how that that played out in in the studio. Mm. Let's reverse engineer some of that overnight success. What do those early days look like in the studio? Well, for a start, um, um
0: what the hell did we think about like buying a gym or like starting a gym? Like we we had no business running a gym business. And I guess all the advice from people way smarter than us. Just like I don't think this was a good idea. Cool. I'm gonna get seven, you're gonna
1: get yeah, fourteen. We're gonna yeah, we're gonna buy half of Sydney up. Thank God we couldn't get enough leases. Like, we we're like, oh fuck, well, why don't we just start with one and we'll do it together? Thank God. Thank God. It was so hard. Mm-hmm. So from
0: the start, I reckon we made every fucking mistake
1: any business owners could make. Like what? Let's unpack some of these. Let's go down memory lane. Okay. So where do we start? <laughs> where do we start, man? Uh well for a start, how about getting our first baz? I was gonna say the baz. What well, hold on, we don't want to make any money. Why have we got a, a tax bill? Bill, I thought we were getting money. I was like, how good <laughs> is this? we're getting money from government Statement. from starting a bloody
0: business. Yeah. Now it turns out we've got to pay it. Pay it from what? <laughs> we don't have any money. Who who do we need to talk to about this? And what the hell is a bath? <laughs> And then we get another one. Yeah. And then every time we like, just just make enough money to scrape by, another bill comes. And then what about in January when the land tax bill land turned out? What the fuck's a land tax bill?
1: Yeah. And then just, you get on top of everything, all of a sudden there's a rent review or a bloody CPI increase. Oh. What
0: are these things? Like No one taught us this. This is
1: what they should be teaching at school, right? What about the bloody people that we hired? Mm. Uh, the, the first couple of trainers. All right, guys, we're just starting out this business. We'll just start you off part-time. We'll just ease into it. And they both turn around like two days later. All right, guys, we'll quit our jobs. We're all in. We're all in. But no, 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 no. We don't even know what the fuck we're doing in the conversation that we had. I remember like, this is a real gut
0: punch when we thought, okay, we could have really fucked, we, we, maybe we fucked this whole thing up. And I was sitting around at like the 6.40, we only had four classes mm-hmm. at that time. It was at mm-hmm. 6 a.m., 6.45 a.m., mm-hmm. 6 p.m., the 6.45 p.m. I was sitting around at the 6.45 a.m., just going, hey. okay,
1: okay. Is this, I'll sign my missus in to make the numbers look good. <laughs> Is this normal? And then it's like, okay,
0: don't I? And I was like, try to act cool in front of our trainers. That's all right, guys. No, nah, that's all right. I, I see a few more people checked in for the afternoon classes. So then I'd go to work. Like, So I'd scurry into the gym, open the roller doors up, start the 6am 6 and 6.45, shut the roller doors, scurry off to work, and still the first one then turn the lights on, run an agency, a multinational agency, Right. And pretend that I'm not worried about the gym, do that, split at five to get down to, you know, talk to the team and open up for the 6 p.m. And guess what? No one turns up. Brutal. No one turns up. And fuck, it was like that. Doing 100-hour weeks, it was like that for so fucking long until things changed. What were some of the lessons from those early days that you took from that? I reckon the biggest thing is, and is what people need to get through their fucking heads, is like no one's coming to save you.
1: And look, we bought a franchise because it was a license. Yeah. Oh, sorry, it was a license. Like that was for like I need to, that was another mistake, trusting <laughs> tr- trusting an HQ. No, but for us, yeah, we, we we bought a license for a franchise because we were like, you know what? This is a great idea. Like, we we're like, we're going to be investors. You know, we saw a P&L. It looked pretty good on, on the charts. Looked like it was going to be an ATM. in about Yeah. A month, yeah. All we had to do was just put a sticker on the wall and, and collect the money. Um, but yeah, obviously, it didn't turn out like that. Like, it felt like we had to do a lot of the thinking and brand development for the company. There was nothing. There was nothing at the time. We're going back to 2014, right?
0: 2014. It's almost 10 years ago now. There was nothing. Mm. Nothing. I remember I was doing, like I was door knocking in the local area. I was like, uh, yeah, it's Andrew from f 49. Who? What's that? Oh, it's F45. Is that like CrossFit? Well, that was three years ago. No, we work out with our shirts on. But anyway, if you yeah, if you know CrossFit, then you'll know F45 eventually. Mm. For so long, it was like, who?
1: What? Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, but like yeah, and we didn't wait for HQ. And some studios did. Like you know, like you know, oh, they're going to send some leads down. They're going to do this software update. Marky Mark's going to bloody be on TV. We're gonna get They're going to gonna save us. No.
0: The biggest thing was when we hit what I felt was rock bottom at the at the studio when we got that letter from our landlord. Mm-hmm. A, little, a little love letter, a love letter, we'll call it. Um, that's when that underdog in me, that competitor, that raw competitor in me, I think came out you know when i talked to you about like you know school uh, like it wasn't until i went to uni and i didn't have to do it and, 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 and like when i went to those success centers for telstra like it's when there's it like an arena of people that were like completely
1: underestimating you know the son of an immigrant like mm-hmm. that's when it's like i'll oh, fucking take it that was slightly different this wasn't about can we do it this was like we had to fucking do we had to do it we had to do it yeah you know who door knocks still to this day who door knocks but i was door knocking
0: man because like i needed to get the word out there i was well we're going to lose this gym and then we're going to lose this house that we just you know got this bloody massive mortgage for my wife just had our first baby and we're trying to start a family and and you know left a high-paying six-figure marketing job to fucking roll the dice with the gym right i just felt this incredible sense of necessity this Mm -hmm. like responsibility to like not fuck this up for everyone Mm -hmm. um but also, you, look, you've just got that confidence and that belief, right? Well, i tell you what, like half the time it's, it's a show, but it's because I need to believe in me first mm-hmm. to then get anyone else to believe in me. I remember this time when I was like, okay, I'm going to do some door knocking in the local streets and I hated the idea of it, right? But I needed to do something and no one was going to come and save me. I had to do this myself. So I made these posters up and went down to office works. There was a whole week of me being at Officeworks till close up here in um, Tarrant Point was still getting fucking posters printed, like the biggest posters I could find. And I'd roll them up uh, under my arm. And that Sunday I was playing touch footy and I fucking popped my calf muscle and it was a grade two tear. I was on crutches and I was like, how the fuck am I going to do door knocks on crutches? But like, if I didn't, no one would rinse me for it. Like, No one would ever blame me for not doing the door. No one would ever know. No one would ever know, but I knew. Mm. And I couldn't fail. Like, I can't let this business go under because it'll take everything else with it. Because mm-hmm. we signed all those fucking forms, mm-hmm. right? all those guarantees. So at office works, tool closed, getting these fucking posters printed, and I'm out there, and guess what? It was fucking pouring rain. And I remember there was a moment when I was standing- I'm Pretty sure it would have been in the middle of winter as well, right? Middle of winter. Trying to get everyone revved up for a winter challenge or something like that. So I'm standing on Bay Street, Outside of 80 Bay, the cafe, I remember the moment as if it happened yesterday. Got my posters rolled up under my arm on crutches. I'm just about to cross the road to do some door knocks in the corporate area. And then a car drives past, hits the puddle. A puddle fucking drenches me. I drop the posters. They all fall out of the rubber band. I'm like, fuck this. Pick the posters back up, roll them back up, and then just kept hobbling my way to that seven story office block, walked into the lift, started at seven and just worked my way back down to the ground floor and just signing people up, Mm. man, like signing people up, putting these massive posters, wet posters up in their kitchen and just going, fuck it. Like it can't get any worse. It's every time something happening, it's getting worse than this. Bang. It can't get any worse than this. But like no one's ever seen those moments. There was no one else there. There was no one else there. And that's like what it fucking took to like start to turn the shit. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, um, I remember like, you talk about like some hustle or some intensity around it. I remember like people were doing a trial and, um, before they finished their trial, I'd go into the studio and I'd pre-fill out an easy debit form. (laughs) I'd pre-fill out with their name, phone number. I'd pre-fill everything out and I would just highlight the bit that they need to sign. That's it. it. I, I didn't want to leave anything up to chance. Because I couldn't, I couldn't fail. So, remember and Zoe. Mm. So Sam and Zoe, come,
1: come this, so these guys, these guys came through on a group on, like they were the shittest, lowest quality lead you could ever, ever have in your gym. But it didn't matter. I don't I like, fucking care. Yeah. I didn't fucking
0: care. I was going to get these two right. So I pretty thought out two different forms, and I got stuck talking to someone else, and they'd slinked out. They knew I was coming. Yeah, they, they knew I was coming in hot. They, they like slinked down the stairs and tried to make out. So I was like, I've signed this one person up that was in front of me and got them to sign the pre-filled form. And then I grabbed the other two, the pre-filled, seven and Zoe, and I fucking ran out of the studio and I chased them up the road. <laughs> did, you get, did you get the sale? And I got the buddy sale. I got two sales. FIFA. And like still to this day, that sort of started, that hustle, that was where the original kind of the wolf was. Mm. Gross street started coming through, which is why the wolf pack's called the wolf pack. Just as FYI, it was from that moment. It's like that, that, that is the length of the hustle that I went through to crawl out of the situation that we were in. And,
1: um, yeah. So that's, look, that's a really good insight into your resilience. But yeah, let, let's dig a bit more into the confidence. Okay. Okay. So go back to, um, Kasha, my back a couple of years, Gladys and Scobo are about to lock. Mm. the Country down because of this little coronavirus thing. I remember I was at a barbecue. It was a Sunday afternoon. I was at a barbecue, and and you called and are you watching the news. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, okay. What the fuck are we gonna do? And you're like, oh, I got it. We're gonna go do remote classes and this and that. like what was going through your mind then? Oh man. Oh, because yeah. The the insight is what you zigged and everyone else was zagging. Like people were like, oh, I'm gonna lodge something with my molecular MP. I'm gonna stay open. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do that. Instead of just like trying to find a way to make some money, they just wanted to like bitch and moan and wait for someone to help them again.
0: Again, I reckon this was because of, yeah, one thing that my mum used to always say, and just to paint the picture, my mom is a small Asian woman. She never complained. She was never the victim. She always looked at the opportunity. She always looked on the bright side and she was always grateful for the moments because like she had come over from Indonesia to live a better life. And this was the better life. So yeah, I remember uh, like leading up to that announcement, I was like furiously texting in a group chat with Jess and Michelle. I shouted Jess and Michelle, and we're like, "It's going to fucking happen! It's going to drop the hammer! It's going to fucking happen! We're going to get locked down! What would we do?" So I'm like, I was in a doom scroll, man. I was refreshing news dot com, like refreshing, refreshing, refreshing. The only thing that would take my mind off was watching um Tiger Tiger King on Netflix. But as soon as it happened and it's going, oh, we yeah, from 12 o'clock tomorrow, you're basically illegal. I went, okay, hell, okay. And everyone's freaking out. And I was like, it almost felt like a stillness had come over me. And I just went, I know exactly what we're going to do. And we're going to do it. And just as a defining moment, just as a statement, you're not going to close us down. We're going to do it ourselves. And we're going to do it one hour before you shut everyone else down. So... That afternoon, I went to Budding's and got a whole bunch of equipment, sanitizers and all that kind of shit, and the next morning went into the studio, and it was like a fucking funeral. Mm. And it was like, sorry, Doze, sorry for your loss, Doze, sorry for your loss. I was like, the fuck's wrong with you guys? We're going to have the best time ever. We're all doing this. It's not like there's another choice. Mm. So why don't we just maximize the opportunity here, and let's just have the fucking best time ever. Really what was happening mm. in my head? Yeah, it's like. Fuck, we're gonna do this. Like, how the fuck we just spent all this time
1: building this business up? We actually wanted to like, we actually had it on the market it was on the market. market. Yeah, so we we built it up. We had three hundred and thirty three members, I think, at, at that point in time. It was a million dollar studio, a million dollar studio on the market. You know, big offers on the table, and then yeah, when that news hit, it was it was worth zero at that point in time. So to everyone, Christian,
0: Jake, Soph, Mel, like everyone that was there, they thought. I just got this shit sorted. It's like you has been through three other lockdowns. There was no rules. No one's ever been through a lockdown yeah, anyway, so I was fucking freaking out, to be honest. But the statement was there. We wanted to go. We wanted to go live with our very first workout one hour before we were forced shut, and that sort of really set the tone throughout the rest of the lockdown. But even through lockdown, like even with, you know, I was just just stay one step ahead. Just stay one step ahead of everyone else.
1: really that was when sort of the seeds of Geronimo were planted and grew. So how did lockdown and your decisions help with Geronimo? Well, I think what happened was
0: like everyone was preparing for Armageddon Mm. effectively. Everyone lost their shit. I remember I had to pull over on the side of the road. I was getting phone calls from the clients that were in Geronimo at the time going, those were out. I'm so sorry, but we're out. We don't know what's going on. Our members are dropping like flies, like I've got to protect my family. And it was just this really morbid... One by one, everyone's like, I love you, brother, but like, I've got to go. But this is this real sense of like, oh my God, there's like an asteroid heading
1: for Earth. Mm. It's so- some state, right? There was, I think the page- was- the Facebook group at the time was called the, the no, Corona Survivors. I, I, I renamed it to the Corona Survivors
0: and a couple of them faded and I love them so much for it. But I remember I had to pull over inside a Woolwich Road and bring the wolf pack. Mm. Every single one of them. And I had to let them go. And, um, that was really hard. It was really hard. We didn't know what was like,
1: This was a real low moment in business where we could lose the whole damn thing here. Mm. That was the internal monologue. So I'll, t- I'll tell you what I could see from the outside. From the outside, you're like, fuck it, I'm going to put this in. No one else is going to do it. So I'm going to put this industry on my back and-, and get us through this thing. So like, you you look down, so, so I'm like, you know. let's just find a way to get through this thing together. And like, it helped. Like uh, owners stayed on-, on the books with us some of them were saying, you know what, no, no, I'll pay f- I'm will pay. going to pay full freight to get through this. And we just worked through the situation because, again, it wasn't like that HQ coming to say it. it wasn't the government. Like, someone had to do something about it and that was you, right? And I didn't wait for an invite. No. No. I didn't wait. Like, no one asked me to do
0: it. I didn't wait for an invite. I was like, fuck, well, no one was is stepping up here, man. Like, no one else is stepping up here. And I tell you what, if people aren't finding the hope and the belief out there in the world, then fuck, I'll do it. Give me give a dose. So then- After everyone thought that, there's no way that you could market through lockdown. There's no way people are buying memberships through lockdown. Um, I challenged that and I came up with an offer and was the first one out there in market with the first offer. It was a 14-day survival guide that um, I wrote and Tom designed. We put that out there as a lead magnet and we're getting $1 leads out of the market. $1 leads, people were sitting at home. It was the very first lockdown, making sourdough and basically getting fat. So get Lockdown Survival Guard and and then ran the first acquisition campaign, which was a 21-day lockdown rescue. Man, turning mm-hmm. And then I had the first phone call and her name was Fitzy. Basically, I started calling her Fitzy and it was the first sale and I was like, oh my God, I've done it again. Offer, sale over the phone. And it's like, I'm, I'm making money in lockdown. Mm. So then- For a gym that's shut. For a gym that's shut. Like it's illegal. Yeah. So they're doing Zoom workouts. It's like, I don't know, like, fuck yeah, this is included, this is included, like, this is included, Visa or MasterCard, Visa. Perfect. So did it again, did it again. And, and then I was like, fuck, I think we're on. I think we're on. Then I called the wolf pack back and said, oi, I'm not going to get the bear back together. And then brought them back one by one. And they started selling for me. And it was like, all right, I'm going to start ringing the clients. Even though the ones that left, I said, listen, we're making sales, it's working. We're still on. It's just changed. We're now online. Mm. And then the rest of the network started to see this. And then um Adam DeGiorgio said, Adam's lovely brother. Popped a little testimonial into the champions group at the time of how, you know, we're helping people like recover their businesses
1: and bounce back. And my phone blew up, man. I think what worked really well back at that time as well, Gladys was like posturing that the gyms were gonna open again soon. No one knew if it was going to be two weeks or three weeks or four weeks, but we knew it was coming. We knew we were sort of through the other side of this thing, we're getting closer. But it felt like everyone was just waiting for the announcement so then they could reopen their gyms. But the attitude we had was like, okay, great. Like, We're going to open up soon, so we'll make up something. What about a deposit mm-hmm. and come back to the gym, right? So make up a new product. We ran some ads. There was no one else in the market at all, right? The entire industry was on, on pause or cancel. And there was no competition running ads. And that's when things really took off for, for us, right? It was, everything was on sale. Yeah. Like, the leads were on sale. Yeah. And I don't know, it just
0: goes to show, like, and I'm I'm going to be real, it just goes to show, like, in this industry, you know, there's not all the depth behind people's purposes. And then mm. as soon as there's a lockdown, it was like, it was hard for everyone, right? It was hard for everyone. But I kept asking the question to myself in those lonely moments, those Really dark nights and those like early mornings where I had nowhere to go, and I just kept saying to myself, "What if this was the best thing that ever happened to us? Mm. What if this was the best thing that ever happened for us?" And then through
1: that frame, what do I need to do to make that true? Well, look, the irony is it actually was it was the, the best. best thing yeah. because what happened by having that deposit offer, our two studios opened up. When Gladys gave us the go-ahead, we were full. We'd sold out. Record two, profits. Yeah, two, two full studios. And back then, the the entire network looked at us and, hey, how'd you guys do it? And that, that's that's when, yeah, I think we signed about 100 studios in, in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Best thing that ever happened for us. So it's like it was from that
0: moment going, what if this was the best thing that happened for us? Mm. And then playing through that filter. and then And then it came true.
1: So yeah, it's not not yeah. So not an overnight success. This was what what six or seven years in the making with a couple of major just speed bumps and roadblocks. Yeah, these were the defining moments. Like there was just a couple of defining moments strung together. One more little speed bump you had. December last December in December last year. What happened?
0: Oh, okay. I don't think I've ever told this full story. It was the day before the December summit. I was sitting at the Grind Cafe, which is the same cafe I go to every fucking morning. And I've had a thousand mornings just like this. And I was there to meet Sophie to do a rehearsal and look through the slides before the summit, Mm. which was happening the day after. At 7.50 a.m., I'd been there since 5. At 7.50 a.m., it was a completely normal morning. I had had a thousand mornings just like this. At 8 o'clock, my body was starting to shut down. What I noticed was I was freezing. I was freezing. And it was December, bro. Like it was summer. I was fucking freezing. And I had this like pressure on my chest, like an elephant was sort of sitting on it. And I thought, like, I don't know, I'm getting old now. Like, is this indigestion? Is this heartburn? Like, is this what it feels like? Or I'm not an anxious person, but is this anxiety? Am I nervous about tomorrow? I really tried to lean into it. But it just felt like it was um, spreading across the left side of my chest and. Up to my jaw and, and down my left side. And then Sophie turns up. I go and meet her outside and like stand in the sun. And she's obviously used to me being 100 miles an hour. So she's like, all right, let's go. What, what's, what's, what's wrong? I said, I don't, I don't feel too well. Mm. And she goes, what's going on? Why? And I was like, I don't know. And I said to her, what does anxiety feel like? And then she tried to sort of explain it. Like, I don't know if it is actually. So she goes, just, why don't you try and do some deep breathing and I'll just order a coffee. So I go sit in the sun and I try and do some deep breaths. So it's like, oh, fuck, this ain't working. And then I came back in and I said, hey, um, I think I need to go. And she goes, why? And I said, uh, j- just, just wait here a second. I said, I'm going to call you. I told her I was going to call you. I walked outside, sat in the sun, my back resting against another table because I almost couldn't keep myself up. And then I Googled. What does a heart attack feel like? And then I read the screen. I was like, "Oh fuck, I gotta go." And I remember, like, what was going through my mind at the time was, "I don't want to die waiting for an ambulance to turn up." So I rode my bike home. Sophie tried to stop me. She was like, "Put your bike in the car, you idiot. Let's go. I'll take you. I'll take you now." I was like, "No, I gotta go." And that was just—I just backed myself right. Now, fortunately, I had already lost my license because I was uh, accidentally uh, using my phone while I was driving four times, a four days in a row. Um, so I was already on like a little bike, but it was an e bike. I hopped on that and I was like kind of pedaling home and I was riding along Barney Bay Road and um, it was kind of like a little hill. Mm. And on the crest of that hill was a school and there was all these kids loading in and out of this bus. And I thought to myself, I don't wanna I don't wanna I don't wanna like fall off this bike and die in front of all these kids that are just, you know, ruin their day. But my heart was like really struggling to get up that hill, even with the assisted motor. I get home, make it home. I couldn't I couldn't lift the bike up the three stairs out the front, open the door flop into bed I just felt like I, why don't I just sleep it off mm. and I'll catch up with Soph later and I just I just had enough presence of mind to call Michelle and go where are you and she goes I'm just up the road dropping the kids off at school I'm not going to go to work today because Zali's sick I was like yeah that's right she is sick Zali's our youngest Michelle goes what's wrong and I go I hey good buddy chest pains And because of my history, like, because of my heart history, like, Michelle had chest pains. and went, oh, fuck, okay, like, we need to do something about this. So she gets home and sees me in bed, takes one look at me and goes, we're going to the hospital. We get in the car, six minutes up the road, we get to the hospital. And um, the second the nurse attached the last chest lead of the ECG, the fucking... The whole thing lit up and she, the nurse, I just saw the panic come over her face and she was starting to press numbers. She was trying to call people, like she was dropping the phone. She was like, this was a moment. like, And I just said, I asked her three questions and I said, am I having a heart attack? She goes, mm-hmm. I said, I- is this serious? And she goes, mm-hmm. And I said, do you think I'll make it? And she goes just Need to get you to the room, Jesus. And within 30 seconds, I had fucking seven cannulas in me, magnesium, potassium. They were putting like aspirin just to try and thin the light and try and like you know put the minerals through. Um, had they put me in a wheelchair at this time? I was like, I had nothing, I had nothing in me, like I was like weak as fuck. They put me in a wheelchair, they wheeled me into the recess room, which. Yes, it was the same recess room that two years beforehand, our little daughter was dying in that recess room. So Michelle was besides herself. Like mm-hmm. it was kind of bringing up all that other trauma. They wheeled me in. There was fucking like, must have been 15 doctors in there, man. Like and nurses and students. I remember there were students in there and they were all yelling, Mr. Heders, Mr. Heders, Mr. Heders. like, fucking hell, what's going on? Again, like. Just this out of body experience. and they put me on the table and, and they just get to work. They just get to work. I oh, it was so fucking scary. Like just all I could see was a fluoro light and just all these people like moving my body, like left up, left down. And they're just kind of yelling at each other. And I remember this one little student who was like ripping open a rat test. <laughs> a rat test <laughs> was coming up to me and she was like, oh, sorry, I've got to test you for COVID. I was like, do what you gotta got do? And then she didn't put it up far enough. <laughs> I just, just jam it up there, and then she goes bang. I think it touched my eyeball, <laughs> and then um, and it was like negative, right? And then they brought over the ultrasound machine, and it was like the machine was fucking the, the machine wasn't working properly. Oh, I think the other ultrasound machine it was like mayhem. My adrenaline, like it was, it was through the roof. Anyway, so they um, I remember like back when we arrived in the in the waiting room in the ER, I was there with Michelle and Zali because Zali was sick, right? I was there looking in Zali. And I didn't actually want to pick her up because, like, I didn't want to drop her if I died. Mm. So, yeah, I'm on the bed. They're like, okay, we're going to prepare the operating theatre. Lastly, what are you allergic to? And I said, "Uh, it's the same joke that I normally give in the hospitals. I go, codeine and shellfish. Shellfish, especially if you serve me a seafood platter. And they're like, not funny. I was like, oh, (laughs) good. Oh, what happens? What happens? What happens? I was like, oh fuck! I don't know. I just, I just, I just feel a bit of shit. And and then they go, we need to give it to you anyway. We'll just give you something for the allergy. I said, like, oh girl, this is fucking serious. So syringes went in. The whole thing. They start wheeling me, and I just remember this scene, just like in the movies, where you sort of lying down on the bed, and you just see these fluoro lights go past you. That's all I was seeing. I was fucking freezing. And then they put me on the operating bed, and they said, Mister Hendoza, this, you're 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 having a major heart attack. Um there's all these risks associated with what we need to do, but we've got to do it, otherwise you won't make it. Mm. So I was just like, fucking do what you got to do, man. Yeah. yeah. At, at that point, I just surrendered. I was like, fuck, I'm here now. You got to do what you got to do. I remember I said to them, I I did say this to them. I genuinely did say this to them. I've got this event on tomorrow. <laughs> it's called the summit. Well, I'll be able to do the summit. And they said, You're going to be here for a week. (laughs) So then it was, it was locked out. I woke up in the theatre. It was so noisy because everyone was just like the commotion. Mm. It was so fucking noisy. And I just had this pain. I I was like, I was in pain and it was so noisy. And there was a moment where there was no pain and it was silent. I thought I
1: died. Jesus. Was that? Was that just before you went under or was that, I don't know, like an out-of-body experience or something?
0: I don't know. I had no pain, no noise. I I thought I'd gone. Mm. And you know what? At that moment, nothing else mattered. What car I drove didn't matter. How many, how many zeros in the account didn't matter. Like, stuff didn't matter anymore at that moment because I couldn't take it with me. All that mattered was, did I matter? Mm. Did the life that I live, did it matter? Is the only thing that I thought of. And I said to myself, if I make it through this, things are going
1: to change. Obviously, a pretty traumatic major life experience. I know plenty of people who would play the victim or crawl into a hole or, you know, like, retreat. What was your perspective on the other side of it? I get into
0: the ward and I kind of wake up, still groggy, and then there's all these people at the front of my bed in the white coats and or the clipboards, and they just looked to me really like, I can't even describe the fucking look on their faces, but they were like, Mr. Hendoza, you are one very lucky man. You made it. That was a major heart attack. It's called a STEMI. And the most common symptom of a STEMI is death. They normally find people that have had it, and but, but they're dead. It's called a widow-maker. And there was this little lady that kind of like came out from behind the mosh pit of people and sat down next to my bed and she put her hand on my arm and said, This is gonna be really hard, especially for a guy like you, to recover from this mentally, not just physically. Her name was Wendy. She ran the rehab center to get people back on my feet. And I remember I said to her, It's not gonna be hard for me. And she goes, Why is that? And I said, I'm gonna make this the best thing that's ever happened <laughs> yeah. for me, yeah. not to me. For me, mm. the best thing that's happened for me.
1: Yeah, not not to right. That's 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 interesting language. Like the two is like things happen to you, you're a victim. But they said no, this has happened for you. And how are you gonna harness this and prepare yourself forward?
0: And then she goes, "I've never heard someone say that before." Mm. I said, "Well, you haven't met me yet, Wendy." <laughs> and then I was saying, like, you know, your life's just changed. Mm. No shit, Wendy. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of things you're going to have to do differently now. There's a lot of things that like, other people can sort of do. Your life has changed, right? What you just went through, not many people make it. You did. The price of that is you're going to be on medication for the rest of your life. You can't do certain things anymore. You need to live differently and all that sort of stuff. I said, tell me what I need to fucking do and I'll do it. I mm. didn't resist any of it. Like, my pantry changed. They said, oh, I recommend reading these two books. Like, I bought it on Amazon then. Mm. Like, they turn up the next day, um, you know, read me. Like, just all the stuff that they sort of mentioned on our Take 7 tablets a day. I fucking never complained about it. Mm. Never complained about it. And, like, yeah, every day it's like, this has happened for me. Now it's my job to find out what the four is and then live through that. So, that's why I was like, we're on a fucking mission. What's the 4-4? What are you taking from that? What I'm taking from that is, and this is what I've been telling everyone, there was a 1.0 diet that day. Mm. There was a 2.0 in the sequel. It's about, and we, we did an episode of this a couple of episodes ago, but like releasing all the shoulds. Mm. Like I don't do things I should do anymore. I only fucking do what I want to fucking do. Now, it's so much better. Like health-wise, making those changes there, you know, we think Bigger now. I feel like I'm in the sequel now. Like this is like my bonus time now. So, like, how far can we go? How many people can we actually help? I want to make the biggest impact. I want to live a life that mattered. Not just to me, but for a lot of people. And just have way more meaning than I did in the past, which I thought actually did have a lot of meaning, but it's just gone to a whole other level now. And the other part of it was I'm determined to tell everyone that I fucking mean to get tested. And guess what? I've been telling everyone to get tested. Like you saw me, how much I was posting on socials about get tested, get tested, get tested. Because everyone was like, "Oh my god, couldn't believe it!" Not you, you're healthy. Like, dude, I was running the sand dunes two weeks before I had a heart attack. It's got nothing to do with how fit you are. It's just for me, it was genetic cholesterol, right? So I was telling everyone to get tested, and through that, people have found some stuff. Someone's bromate's brother got tested, and their mum died of a heart attack. He can't work for six months while he gets some shit together. Previous members that are in different countries now—they got tested. Like, why? Well, well, all my mates got tested. I forced them to get mm. tested, and and yeah, about half the amount of people needed heart work done. So I feel like that's part of my mission as well—is to yeah. I reckon I've saved lives since almost losing mine. Mm. It didn't even stop there though. Yeah, you'd think if you're in the sequel. What does life look like? you think you'd be popping all the bottles. You're on jet skis. You're having parties every single fucking day. It's like your life would look like a flow rider. <laughs> film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I couldn't stop. They kept warning me about like what was going to happen to my head, like mm. my mental state. I was like, no, I'll be sweet. I'll be sweet. I'll be sweet. I had no idea. Then it hit me like a ton of bricks, man. I couldn't stop crying for two weeks. I just felt, I felt down, man. And then they said, yeah, this is like, Trauma. You had a near death experience. Trauma isn't what happens to us, it's what gets left behind. It's the wound that's left behind. And they said, you know, a lot of guys try and just act tough and try and tough it out. I said, no, I'm not down with that. I actually want to go and speak to someone about this. So I went through therapy and it was like processing the trauma. And there was a book that Sophie loaned me. I'm not going to give it back. It's called The Body Keeps the Score by a bloke called Dr. Joe Dispenza. And it was about how trauma attaches inside the body. Mm. And it's like, if we don't process the trauma, it comes back in uglier forms later on, unprocessed. Then we all know people that have probably had some trauma that haven't kind of processed it or felt it. So I leaned into that and went through all this kind of therapy with someone who's like specializes in near-death experiences and stuff like that. And um, I remember the first therapy session that I had, it was like a one-hour therapy session, probably about minute 41 I was having like a physical response to talking about all this and I had to end the session and like crawl upstairs and then sleep for like 16 hours I was cooked and then the next one happened and then the next one happened and then it was just processing it all and it was almost like there was like a devil inside it was like getting the devil Like you have to talk about it you have to talk about it to like surface it and then I get to um, another session, probably about the sixth session with her, and she goes, how how are you feeling, Andrew? And I was like, I feel fucking great. I feel like, you know, I'm doing this now, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing this. And she goes, what's helped? And I was like, every day. Because at the time, it was just before Christmas. I forgot it was Christmas. Mm. It's only because I heard some Christmas carols outside, and it was the neighbors and um when I was in hospital, I just wanted to come home and I got home and because of the noises and like the kids were making all these noises, not their fault, the kids, you know, I was like, the PTSD was like, just the loud bangs and the loud noises. I actually wanted to go back in hospital. I f- was really sad because like I wanted to be with my family and then I just wanted to go back into hospital just to get a break. But I just set these little tiny goals and one day it was just to get to the mailbox and back, like walking. And the next day I was like, I'll see much farther I can walk. So I walked around the corner. Get tight, and then I'd walk back, and then I was trying to okay, right? And I'd walk around the block and I'd see if I can make it around the block. So then, sort of, you know, made it around the block. I was like, so it's just tiny little achievements snowballed, and that you know, we talk about what gives you confidence. It's actually competence mm. and like evidence of the fact that you can do it. And that's what builds the confidence. So then I started to like make my own little snowball of like tiny little things that I'd set myself. And then when I rolled into the, you know, yeah, the fifth or sixth appointment with the therapist and she goes, I think you've moved out of post-traumatic stress and now you're in post-traumatic.
1: Gross. And I went, "Get yeah, fuck. I've never even heard of that. Is that, a th- is that a real thing or is that just your category of one for that? I don't know. I was like, am
0: I? And in the five or six sessions that I'd had with her, I'd gone for two more operations. They'd put two more stents in. So it was my third stent. So I've had additional operations Including one that they had to call off because of I like got coronavirus that morning. I think weren't you the conscious during one of the operations as well? Yeah, I was a little bit awake through the second one. I was like, I ain't doing that again. If this could it could like get better. So the third one was like, fucking give me extra, yeah. give me extra. And then when I woke up out of that one, and they had given me the all clear, doctor walked in and went, "We fixed it, you fixed it." I was like, that was the last monkey off my back. So then when I rolled into that last therapy session, I was like, they fucking fixed it. I'm fucking I'm. I'm golden. Mm. She goes, Yeah, I think you're in post-traumatic growth now. I went, like, yeah, fucked. I'm good at this too. <laughs> you won therapy. I'm good at therapy
1: as well.
0: <laughs> I genuinely think everyone needs to go through therapy. We've all got something that we're working through. Yeah. But there's so much that went on and um it's still the same question that I'd ask myself through different stages. Mm-hmm. You know, like whenever something really fucking shit happens, it was like, what's it for? what if, what if this was the best thing that happened for me, not to me? And that's how you make a defining moment.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you came back to work in sort of early, early Feb. And yeah, that, like that kind of attitude, we looked at the business with, uh, you know, with a new lens, a new focus, and we just wanted to run the business that we actually wanted to run and park some of the shit that it had accumulated. Even the shit clients, mm-hmm. being real, like yeah. I remember I woke up
0: that sunrise that day and i called you and i said and hey, we're gonna make some fucking pretty bold decisions. Mm. decisions that other people would have been too nervous to make but it's like i ain't fucking living in this sequel just limping around doing stuff that we feel like we should mm. do or have clients that we feel like we should have so yeah we made some pretty tough decisions and rollercoaster but yeah rollercoaster. we both love the business a lot more right and love what we're doing a lot more love our clients a lot more mm.
1: thanks for sharing that was uh that was fucking did that come from yeah um, but look, I, I, I wanted everyone to hear that story. I wanted everyone to see behind the the big personality and the jokes, the big character. I wanted everyone to understand what really makes you tick and what really drives you, your outlook on life. And it's life, right? That's that's your outlook and it affects your family, it affects the business, it affects everything. But just sheer determination and sheer resilience. And that's that. the lesson for today is if people can, can take a, a grain of that resilience and apply it in their own lives, to their own business, whatever's happening, people are going to go through situations, mm. right? It, she she gets real. Um, f- you know, f- For us, like, yeah, that overnight success, in inverted commas, like, it, it didn't happen. There were so many setbacks, so many roadblocks. Like, we just had to just pick ourselves up and keep going. Like, and there's only one speed to go when you're on the dozer coaster, and it's full scent, straight through the brick walls. You know, when we knew there was going to be another, another wall, another challenge, another wall, another challenge. Like, you only lose if you stop. So, if you can take anything from, from this today is from Dozer's story, just take that resilience, take that attitude. There's no victim mentality, like just that resilience and determination. That is how you're going to get that that long-term success because shit is going to happen. Because what's the other option, dude? The other option is yeah, is failing, is closing or, or even worse, that mediocre life, you know, going back to Brian, 40 years, blowing off the dust and that cake. So, that's the life you want, great. But like- if you want to make great things happen, I'd say you only get one shot of this, but mm. some people get two shots. you got to make it count, right? All right. I'm going to leave it on that today, guys. Thanks, Doze. That was awesome. Benny. We'll see you next time. See you guys.
0: Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If something resonated with you, then do one of two things. Either leave a review or send this episode to a mate who's in the industry who might need to hear this. But if you want more right now because your head might be spinning and you're like, all right, those, that what the hell do I do right now? Then in the show notes, you'll find a link to where you can book in for a free 15-minute checkup on your studio where we get to have a look at how you're going right now and where some of the kind of quick win opportunities are to get you moving faster. I can't wait to be back in your ears next week. And if you're listening to this right now, I want you to know that I love you, I appreciate you, I'm grateful for you, and I'm in your corner. You are on the right track and I believe in you. So keep going and I'll see you next week.